0: hey everyone this is prashant and i'll be your host for the vc10x podcast and today we have Ryan springer with us Ryan is a founding partner at midnight venture partners a growth state consumer dtc investor in this episode we talk about how midnight venture partners got started trends in consumer and dtc space common mistakes that founders make cost effective acquisition channels importance of retention difference between D2C and retail, why sustainability products need to be better than competition and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey Ryan, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Prashant. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. Likewise, and so glad to have you here on the podcast. And talk about all things D2C. So to get things started, what's your story and how you started investing? Uh, I
1: usually make a bunch of nepotism jokes uh, when it comes to my story. Uh, my dad started a retail strategy house in the 90s um, with an awful name, actually, called The Touch Agency. I still think it's a terrible name for anything, really. Uh, but he he's been building retail strategy, data analytics, and, you know, pro analytics, some retail execution uh, since the 90s. And I grew up working for him. So I kind of grew up in the dinosaur world of brick and mortar, uh, not D D2C. C. have had to learn a lot about D C from some of my partners at Midnight over the past couple of years. Um, but I got into investing because uh, in, in working for him, we, we helped, he primarily, but we helped uh, build some of the, you know, most successful brands in in natural, better for you wellness. And we didn't we didn't know how to take equity. And I think that I was always driven by, you know, we're seeing a lot of great deals. We're seeing a lot of great brands. How do we get in a, in a meaningful way on the cap table of some of these more exciting ones, and and help kind of shape them and help them not make the mistakes we saw them making over and over again, just like we were on our side of the table. Um, and so getting into investing just felt like a natural extension for my partners, Chris Adam and, and Alex Bodney and I, when it came to seeing, okay, well, we've got this retail strategy house that sees a bunch of the deals and in, in wellness. We've got some connections in the space. You know, why don't we see what we can do in terms of making a, a fund that can that can add an unusual amount of value Everyone kind of says they can, but uh, an unusual amount of value and seeing an unusual amount of deals. And, and, and so that, that was our kind of entrepreneurial light bulb to start midnight.
0: Right. Sounds great. So how long has midnight been around and what's your investment thesis been like? We've been
1: around for around two years, I would say a little over two years. Our investment thesis is mostly seed stage, um, consumer, primarily focused on wellness products with a specialty in CPG, just given the heavy CPG background uh, that, that I come from. Um, and, um, you know, we write 500 k to $1 million checks. We'll do SPVs significantly above that. But the actual seed fund writes seed checks. We'll also do SPVs at a later stage, like much later stage deals, like the other side of the barbell, like beginning and end, like right before you exit. And, and right in the beginning is kind of right. where we play at midnight um and you know i'm sure you have a million more questions about that can shape out kind of our thesis so i won't go too long on you know the retention rates we like to see and the burn rates we like to see and, yeah. and revenue and things like that so I'll, I'll stick with just kind of early stage wellness
0: yeah sounds great and now let's let's get into the d2c uh space so uh what what are the exciting trends that you're seeing and how do you look at this entire space in general d2c for consumer you mean yeah absolutely um,
1: exciting trends. Well, it's not quite an exciting trend, but a trend I've noticed that everyone's aware of is ever since iOS 14, it's been a lot tougher to sell things online. And so, one of the more, for me as a dinosaur retail guy, one of the more exciting trends is that retail, which everyone felt like was going away, is coming back in terms of importance, in a really big way. It's it's difficult. It's it's more difficult than it's been in a long time to launch or scale a DTC brand. Your cac customer acquisition cost is higher um if you're an item that's under 40 bucks it's especially tough you know let's say you have a 50 gross margin on a 20 dollar item you know just gross you're making 10 bucks your cat's probably 40 or 50 you got to sell four or five of these things to even break even and that's not um uh, that's not easy um uh, and so when it comes to it you know Exciting trends for me is omni-channel is more important than it's ever been. You need to be good at D2C and you need to be good at retail. And it's difficult. Very few people have both of those backgrounds. It's a little bit where we come in at midnight. We have D2C partners and retail partners that are that are excellent. But um, the, the trend I'm seeing that, you know, it's been popular for a while. This isn't new. Is, you know, zero to 10-ish million online and then bridge over to retail. Um, I'm seeing founders focus... Recently, more on burn rate, more on retention than I think they had before. And I think that's a really healthy thing um, for, for businesses going forward. Um, in terms of trends online, that's tough for me to say. There's a lot of adaptogenic, like reishi, Chaga, mushrooms, more nootropic, more focus on mental health. And I think that's great. Um, yeah. Uh, keto seems to be going away a little bit. Uh, We're seeing far less searches for keto on Google. A lot of brands that have positioned themselves as keto now need to position themselves more broad, more broadly. Yep, Uh, because the the principles of keto is still good, but uh, that's another trend that I've seen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like when when you're looking at all these deals uh, that are coming in front of you in DDC and consumer. So how are you making the evaluation that uh, are these good deals to invest or not? What are the kind of key things that you're looking for? Uh, retention. Uh, a lot of a lot of brands
1: focus on acquisition. That's important, of course. But uh, are people buying again? That tells you whether or not you have a business or just a creative way to burn a lot of cash just because, uh, you know, you have product market fit. So we like to see a certain percentage of consumers buying more than once a year. If you're selling a couch, this is different. It'd be pretty weird if you're selling two couches in the same person every year, but, uh, that's usually not the kind of brand I'm talking about, you know, whether it's, whether it's, um, you know, a beverage or, um, uh, grain-free pretzels, like, uh, Fidjoy, one of our, one of our portfolio companies, high retention rates are critical if you don't have them and you haven't figured out your product market fit. And if you and if you haven't, then you shouldn't scale because everything's going to cost more and go worse um, just because you're acquiring a bunch of consumers who aren't coming back. Uh, you're really just turning off a bunch of people to your brand because whatever it is doesn't work for them. Um, and so uh, number one would be retention probably, although there's a lot of must-haves. Another one is a scalable gross margin. Um, whether it's good now or we clearly can see it can get good. It needs to get to a point where, you know, our acquirer would find it attractive Um, burn rates that match up to the category and life stage of the business. You know, you can burn capital, but only if the metrics make sense and the burn is strategic and we feel like you're going somewhere Um, prefer brands on the lower end of the burn scale. Uh, And then, and then finally, Acquisition is important. So an ability to game the system to get as low a blended CAC as you can get, blended with organic, um, is critical. An ability to leverage influencers or to have a brand that influencers like kind of peddling, whether that's affiliate or classic influencer, is also super important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like talking about all these different acquisition channels, which one do you think is performing the best for DTC brands these days—is it influencers or is it paid ads or is it something else? It's influencers by mile. If uh, you could
1: do it well, it's hard. It's really hard. You know, I right. see these brands like all you gotta do is make viral videos. Well, if it, you know, that would make you famous if you're really good at that. You shouldn't even do a brand. You should just be a an influencer yourself if you're that capable of making viral videos. So this is obviously easier said than done. One of our portfolio companies that's doing. Uh, really, really well. It's called Jolie. It's a filtered shower head. Um, and uh, their whole thin messaging is like step zero, your beauty routine should be removing the chlorine and other chemicals that you're pouring on your face and hair, damaging your face and hair. Every day you feel better. Your skin feels better. Your hair. Um, let's say you like, you know, a lot of women uh, color their hair. Your your color will last a lot longer, look a lot better if you're filtering your, your shower. And so you know, Joe Lee has has an unbelievable Instagram. If you follow it, I think you can learn a ton about about leveraging influencers to grow a business. They've done unbelievably well. I, I won't share the metrics on the podcast, but it's crazy um, how they've scaled and how profitable they are. Uh, and they've done almost all of that by incentivizing user-generated content uh, or, or kind of organically, just by building this culture. And so. Influencers seems to be the most powerful Google and Instagram, Facebook ads are still, if you're, if you know what you're doing, you're sophisticated and your product and price point lends itself to, to that, your category, those can still be good. You know, the rumors of their demise, I think is overblown. Uh, so I think you can still do paid. Um, it just has to make sense and it makes sense for less people than it ever has before. Um, and so, you know, and, and then finally you see the, yeah, I think this one's another tough one to pull off, but affiliate. So affiliate codes, people driving traffic back to you. Um, it worked really well for one of my partners uh, when he was with daily harvest. Um, and, and you can see it, you can see it work with the right brands. So um, I don't think there's, I see people struggling. TikTok is a two headed beast. I see a lot of people struggling to get any value out of the paid piece of TikTok, and I see brands doing unbelievably well with the generated content side side of TikTok. Um, so, uh, the the people focusing on building organic on TikTok, if they're if you're capable of doing it, you can do extremely well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And does uh, th- does that also like make sense from the cost perspective as well? Because uh, in the ads, you get a you have a set price for a set number of views that you're going to get. And also, there is a tag that, okay, this is an ad. And you perceive that differently, right? Uh, but in case it's an inf- influencer that you already follow, is sharing about that, then you're more likely to listen. And also, how does the cost work? Is it like a one pricing model that, okay, we charge this price for $1? One- reel that we are going to make or one TikTok that we are going to make or is it based on how many views it gets? Let's say it goes viral then it's, it's going to cost a lot more is that kind of pricing also working? It, it totally depends on the influencer um, the best case
1: that you can get, you know what Joe Lee does is, is, is often doesn't pay for influencers they're often sending the product uh, incentivizing them with free stuff but very but seldom cash um, they want authentic fits where the influencer really is like, I want this really badly. I actually want to tell people about this. This is phenomenal. And that comes down to that retention and product quality over again. If your product's good enough, influencers are going to be far more open to influencing. Um, and, and and also, you know, it's wonderful if the big account influencers post something, but the micro influencers, the people in the middle or just as important and often much easier to work with uh, and get to so you know a lot of the most successful brands that I've seen at least in, in hardware it's kind of giving it away is a really powerful tool uh, it's not the same when you got to pack energy bars than when you have like a filtered shower head that costs you know 140 bucks but um, just giving it away asking them to do the unboxing process that's worked really well for for some of our portfolio companies now paying for it, sometimes that can work, sometimes it can't. I, I really encourage brands to, to follow the metrics and it's that's a lot squishier. That's where affiliate helps, where you can see how many people are using the code. So you can track much closer how things are going. Now D to C if a big influencer post and suddenly your sales skyrocket. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell, you know, that, that was connected, but it's still it's still harder to to judge metrics from that from that angle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And yeah, that's a great uh, approach even for DTC companies who are starting out and do not want to spend a lot. Then I think giving, giving, giving it away is a great way to like get your brand out there uh, in hands of the right influencers. And then if they choose to share a video about it, then you're good, right? And uh, let's, let's now talk about one of the recent investments that you've made at uh, Midnight Venture Partners. And why you made that investment if you'd like to share. Sure. Um I'll talk
1: about I mean there's a lot of good ones. Uh I'll talk about they V A E. It's a caffeine spray. Um it essentially uh there's other caffeine sprays in the market, but they contain a really low amount of caffeine per spray. So you would have to spray them like twenty times for a cup of coffee. Which is just an awful lot of sprays. Uh they is 20 to 25 milligrams uh, of caffeine per spray. So it's more like three sprays for a cup of coffee. Uh, It's very small, it's very mobile. We have fantastic margins. Um, uh, I can't say who else has invested in the deal, but some very, very strategic groups that have helped us access distributors and relationships we wouldn't have otherwise had that are allowing us to scale quite quickly. They just launched on D2C, I think yesterday, the day before. Um, and essentially what it is, is a zero calorie, zero sugar, caffeine plus l theanine in a suspended liquid. Part of what makes it very special is their ability to, to have solubility of caffeine at the levels required to make it only, you know, take three sprays to get energy. But we like it because, you know, it hits almost every value prop of a, of a consumer. It's, It's cheaper per milligram of caffeine than almost anything else on the market. It's exponentially more convenient because it's always around and it's this tiny little um, stick. Um, It works really quickly. And then finally, it's healthy. You know, Most people's energy is either coffee, which is far less healthy than this, or energy drinks, which is unbelievably less healthy than just caffeine and L-theanine to control the crash and keep you kind of even. Um, And so I think it can... And you're not taking like 200 milligrams at once. You can uh it's very variable it's whatever you want to do but uh i think it's healthier to kind of take like 60 and then 20 20 20 in the next couple of hours like little bumps that allows you to i think have a healthier relationship with caffeine and so that that one that one we're pumped about there's no other spray on the market that 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 can deliver that much caffeine per spray and therefore actually be usable
0: yeah absolutely Sounds uh, sounds very exciting product uh, and would uh, probably put the link in the show notes for people who might want to go and try it. So now now let's talk about how do you support these investments. Once you have made these investments, then how do you support them in like be more successful in in what they're doing? So uh, first, just to take a step back to understand who
1: who we are at Midnight. So uh, the nepotism jokes I had. My dad and his business partner Aaron are partners at Midnight. They've helped build multiple billion dollar and hundred million dollar CPG brands and retail. Uh, our D2C partners are Red Krypton, uh, and they have helped build multiple billion dollar and d to c and and hundred million dollar D2C brands from the ground up. Uh, often our specialty is like zero to one, zero to two, zero to about 60 to 100 million uh, across both those groups, and our uh. General partner on the operations side is a guy named Ken Meyer, and he ran the eastern half of Whole Foods Market for 15 years and ran their supply chain. And so, unlike a normal fund, you have elite retail, elite D2C, elite ops general partners. So, we split the pie more ways than a normal fund, uh, with the idea being that we could bring far more horsepower on the value-add side, again, than, than, than the average CPG fund. And that's the goal we've had since the beginning um doesn't mean you know we reach it every day but uh we're excited about the team we build and it's going well for the first two years so having taken that step back we work with the brand in a, in a versatile way it's it's a, whatever works the brand if it's checking in on a quarterly basis because they're killing it and they don't need a lot of help from us that's fine if it's running their retail and d2c which we do for two of our brands in our portfolio completely that's fine um uh, so it's a whole spectrum. You know, I recently introduced one of our portfolio companies, two of our portfolio companies actually to Costco, uh, which I think can help a lot. Uh, we, uh, got one, a multimillion dollar line of credit. Um, we've helped build their retail strategies, connected them with the best Amazon groups, connected them with brokers, um, connected them to each other to, to, you know, hey, you're doing this well over here, help our other portfolio company and vice versa. Um, So there, and and then finally and honestly the easiest one is help them raise money. Uh, Raising money for ourselves is tough. Uh, Raising a fund is really hard, but when you have a good portfolio company and the network we've built with other funds uh, it makes it it, uh, fun and easy to kind of be like, okay here's the top 10 or 20 CPG funds that are the next level beyond us in terms of check size and where they play. Don't meet all of them nine months before your next round and develop those relationships. And then you'd be amazed how differently the round goes when all the top growth funds know exactly who you are. They've been watching you. Uh, They know we like it. They know, you know, they know it's doing well. Um, So just getting ahead of things, helping brands make strategic decisions, when to go to retail, why, where, where, how all those things we can do those things really easily and and you know the balance for us is making sure we're always collaborative with the founders because we came in thinking hey these vcs are always you know uh a little out of line a little arrogant a little whatever and then you make your investments and you see the investments making mistakes that you know i've made before and so you're trying to say don't do what i've done but some people, sometimes you gotta touch the stove, you know it's hot. And so we, so we, we, we're trying to find that balance between being really involved, but also not being too hands off. Um, and we're early, so I think we're still figuring that out.
0: Absolutely. And uh, talking about mistakes, you just mentioned that we don't want the same mistakes to be made that we've already made uh, by our founders, right? So, what are the most common mistakes that founders make uh, in the D two C A D two C and consumer space? Uh, Over hiring. No, they get a big
1: venture round and then suddenly think they need Silicon Valley level headcounts and stuff. And they don't. Uh, so overhiring, which bleeds into burn rate. That uh, was your number one mistake is the burn rates in some of these businesses. is just, it's silly. You, know, you kind of look at the business. And there's no reason why this should be this high. And when you tell founders about it, the great ones tend to go, okay, well, where should I be? And wh- Where am I burning too much? Um, but a lot of them, understandably, and I think I would be one of them too, I've got a separate business other than the fund. Uh, and so I've made, you know, I, it's funny, I, I give advice on the fund and in my own business, I'll make a mistake that would have, my own advice would have helped with, but it's complicated and you're way closer to it as a founder. It's hard. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, often when you tell a brand their burn rates too high, they're like, Oh, there's no way to make it lower. It turns out there's like a bunch of ways to make it lower and they just didn't, you know, it's hard to understand that when you're that close to the force. So I would say overhiring burn rate. Uh, And then finally a retail, we don't allow our, I mean, it's the only place we really plant a flag. Uh, But I see a lot of founders that I'm talking to on a daily basis, pitching me, they're going to the wrong retailers way too early or way too late or any number of things Where their retail strategy is all jacked up, and they're very naive often about how it's going to move, and I don't think they understand how difficult big retail is or how much it's going to cost, and and everyone seems to think you're going to have this like sales velocity units per store per week that's like way higher than it's actually going to be, Um, and so being naive about retail is another one that I that I see fairly often, and there's there's no way to know that unless you're aggressively going out and asking people who know what they're talking about or do my numbers make sense just socializing them with retail experts and um not everybody knows a bunch of those so they're all understandable mistakes but those are those are three among many that i that i see a lot
0: yeah absolutely and uh, let's talk about the difference between d2c and retail uh and like h- how do these two are different in they operate and do founders confuse that how these two operate um there's a million differences. Uh, one would be d
1: to c allows you a tremendous amount of first-party consumer data. And retail allows you such a cloudier picture of who's buying the product. You can get pretty, pretty detailed information if you have an extraordinary amount of money and it makes no sense to spend until you are very large. If you're buying like, you know, retention level consumer card data from Kroger or Albertson's, Safeway, you can get a much better idea of who this person is, that's buying, how often they're buying. That's unbelievably expensive and so far outside of what a startup brand should be purchasing. Um, so I think the cloudiness, the disconnectedness. You're also going to a distributor. Uh, 3PL, not the same thing, but you do have a middle person on a DTC brand as well. But the distributor relationship is—I find not to surprise a lot of sounders how uh, almost adversarial it is. If it's a big broadliner, if it's a DSD, that can be different. If you're a beverage and you're texting them every day, you're going to war with each other, and it's awesome. DSDs can be super hard too, and that relationship is even more complicated. But you know the the big UNFIs and KEs of the world and wellness—they're not your friend. Um. At all. And I think people get blown away by that. Uh, and then finally, uh, you can just put something for sale on your website. You got to go somehow convince the Whole Foods buyer who has 5,000 other versions of whatever you are that, they, you, that you need to get on the shelf. And they're going to give you one shot a year at some time that they've decided. So I want to get in Whole Foods. Well, the category review dates in September, the third week of September. There's nothing I can do to get into national whole foods until then and you're sitting there going like well should I go into other retailers that aren't as good of a fit what do I do how do I that's so far from now and then you get to the third week of September you have a meeting it goes okay you have no idea if you're in or not for months and so it's just an ultra different now the nice part about retail versus DDC is scalability of retail is amazing and scalability of DTC gets harder and harder and harder honestly your CAC will go up. You know The people you're targeting get more and more wide and less and less of a perfect fit for your product. The thing that frustrates me about C is if I'm doing really well I've got a good product, somebody could come into my category online with a bunch of money and a terrible product. No one's buying it. But even if they just buy ads with all my keywords, my CAC has gone up dramatically. If I own distribution at Walmart, Target, and some little guy wants to come in, but they have a bunch of cash, it's tough for them to buy their way into Walmart or Target. Even if they do, they're not increasing my, you know, my CAC is the same. I'm still sitting on a shelf. I'm still running TPRs. I still own the real estate. Um, it's it's a lot. Uh, you'll I in my opinion, this is just an opinion. You'll see a lot of strategics or investment banks telling you that DTC only brands actually take a little bit of a cut valuation because it's much easier for a challenger to come in and mess up their business, where retail. Much harder for someone to come in and just turn your business upside down by spending much money. it's still it's still there. Competition's still a big thing. But, you know, you own real estate, so it's it's different. That, those are just some of the like a hundred differences that are nuanced between d to c and retail. And it's increasingly important the founders understand those differences and navigate them in an intelligent way,
0: right? And do you think that uh, maybe founders uh, should think about it in a way that, okay, they are starting off at D2C brands, but then later on they mature into retail brands because that's the bigger area to play in and it's easier to scale in retail than it is to scale in D2C. So that's how founders should be thinking that, okay, we start off as D2C brands selling online, but then eventually we get into retail and scale there. I I want to caveat
1: my easier to scale in retail than D2C. It's if you have momentum. If you're a great brand with momentum, retail is going to end up being how you get to two hundred billion much easier than how you would get there with direct to consumer. If you don't have momentum, they're both really tough, and retail might even be harder because the buyers just won't will, will buy you. Um, so I do I do want to clarify that because there's probably going to be some brands watching this that are struggling. Like I don't know what this guy's talking about, but retail I can't even get on the shelf. So um, your question was, you know, DTC first and retail. That's a little bit of a classic playbook by now. It's still very much a smart way of doing things. One trick that we like to employ at the fund is brands will be on DTC. They'll grow like 10 to 15 million. And then they're going to start, try to go straight into like a target. And, uh, I'm actually not a believer in like building slowly through the natural channel of Whole Foods and Sprouts that takes forever. It's just as hard. The revenue's not quite there. I'm, I'm not a believer in that path. But what I am a believer in is establishing a laboratory in between that transition. So if you're DTC at 10 million, go find a central market in Texas of 10 stores that turns a bunch. Erewhon, Erewhon's a bad example. Another smaller chain that you can just focus on for a year, learn what works and what doesn't, Play, learn to play poker with not that many chips so you can lose and still be like, okay. And then go kind of take over the world because there are two different businesses, C and retail. And just like C, if you can treat retail like a laboratory first and figure out what works and build a playbook, you're going to burn a whole lot less cash learning a bunch of expensive lessons than some giant national retailer. Because it, you know, if you go in blind and you go to Kroger nationally, you don't know what TPRs work. You don't know what messaging on the shelf works. And it's going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of pain to figure it out. If you do it at a 15-store chain as an experiment first quietly... You're going to learn what TPRs work. You're going to learn what messaging works. You can scale that playbook, and it costs you a whole lot less money and pain to figure that out. There's de- there's there's actually negatives even to that plan in terms of Nielsen data and other things, but to me, that's one of the smartest ways of doing
0: it. Yeah, agreed. And uh, like you, you said initially in our conversation, that you are seeing a lot of uh, mental health-focused products, psychedelics, and stuff, and uh, and are you also seeing some kind of attention to climate-based products? Because these days, that sector is also pretty much hot. Climate-friendly products are coming up. So any GDC brands that you've seen in the climate space and how that space is actually shaping up? Um, uh, My own company outside of Midnight is a cactus vodka called High Desert.
1: And we uh, use exponentially less water Then most the big vodkas in America are mostly use corn, uh, like a Tito's, and that's actually not that water intensive either, but the gap is still unbelievably big. There, you know, it takes like six hundred thousand gallons of water to grow an acre of corn, according to Google. I'm not a farmer, (laughs) Uh, but it takes zero to grow an acre of cactus, Um, and that's a huge gap. And so uh, my my brand is very sustainable, but I often don't believe that sustainability alone sells much of anything. I think the product has to be good or better or different or special or something. And the sustainability needs to be this awesome bonus add-on. The way that I, I, I believe most people, if they're super environmentalists, that's not why you buy a Tesla. That's why you buy like a Prius. Yeah, you buy a Tesla because it's this cool, awesome right. car and it happens yeah. to be environmental. And that'll, that increases virality of the consumers of the product to say, like, I have a Tesla, I have a Tesla, because it's good for the earth. And it allows them to kind of brag about it. And so I focus on brands that, um, do a really good job of being whatever they are and are sustainable, not just upcycled for upcycled sake. Um, there's a really great, surprisingly good veggie chip company called Pulp Pantry out of Los Angeles. It tastes amazing. It's much healthier for a consumer. Uh, it's made. It's actually got real nutrients and fiber that chips never have. It's made from the pulp left over from juicing vegetables and fruits, and so they've upcycled everything. So it's ultra sustainable, and they lead often with that sustainability. But I've been talking with the founder, Caitlin, super sharp, kind of about leaning more with the health benefits. It's a legitimately different health proposition to eat this snack. It's really good. Um. There's another one in that category, chips called Kazoo, where they use upcycled corn germ, and that, that allows them to use far less water. And it tastes really good. It doesn't taste any different than a normal tort- tortilla chip. So that's two examples in snacks. Um, there's Ugly, which is a uh, upcycled fruit company, uh, where they like use dried fruit. Uh, and so I'm seeing a lot of these in the snack category, and they're they're surprised end up being really good. So upcycled, I think, is, a, is increasingly becoming a big thing on the sustainability side because consumers understand it. With ugly, that's an air concept consumers understand. A lot of the produce just doesn't look good enough to be on a grocery store shelf, but it's still just as healthy. It's still an apple. It's still a banana. It's still whatever. Using those products in a processed way, which obviously is a bad word, but in a way where you dry them out or slice them up or whatever, where it no longer is ugly, Um is, is another thing that we're seeing. Um, but yeah, I think the main thing I would tell brands in the sustainability space is make sure you're excellent at whatever you are. It's not going to work. Right. You can't just hang your hat on sustainability. People aren't going to eat much shittier chips just because it saves the earth. They just don't do that. It's not how they behave. It's got to be as good or better.
0: Yeah, I totally agree to that. And uh, that's that's also something that we have seen with eating a healthy diet as well because we see that is promoted. Everyone knows that what's healthy and what's not healthy but still there is a lot of unhealthy stuff that still gets eaten and but that's probably because that tastes good right probably and if, if you if you build something that tastes good and is healthy then why not right uh, totally. will, and yeah I, and love that example of tesla as well that you buy a tesla because it's kind of a status symbol it's it's fancy right it's it's a fancy yeah. car it's cool and it's not just because of climate of course it's one of the biggest companies in the climate space right now but it 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 is able to do that because of that coolness aspect and not only because it's climate right because people will start caring about maybe climate at a later stage when the effects of it are very evident although it should not be that way right (laughs) because we'll be struggling struggling by then Uh, and vcs understand that okay this is a space that needs to be invested in and they're backing all kinds of products but i think that's an important factor that they need to be looking at that, okay, is this unique? Uh, how is this different from the existing products? Uh, and how will this capture market share against what already is? Because sustainability alone will not make people switch, right? hundred percent. So we come in a little pessimistic whenever you know
1: sustainability. We, we got we to gotta feel like the product is excellent. If we do, then, we, then we're really excited. Uh, that's that rare part of the Venn diagram that you get in the middle. The overlap where you're like, excellent, plus good for the planet. Then you're just hoping the margins
0: and the burn rate and all that makes sense. And then uh, that's kind of where we would write a check. Great. Uh, All right. So now let's move on to a rapid fire round, wherein I'll ask you five quick questions uh, about the fund. And you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. Got it. Yeah. All right. So the first one is, uh, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? Uh,
1: Consumer overall CPG, kind of a specialty wellness within CPG.
0: What's the typical stage of investment? Seed. What's the typical check size you put in? Five hundred K or seven hundred and fifty K. Where can founders pitch you in case there's a direct way? LinkedIn. Definitely find me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. And where can listeners follow you? LinkedIn?
1: LinkedIn. I don't I don't have any social media, unfortunately. <laughs> so
0: not like they need to follow me on that anyway. So LinkedIn would be great. For sure. I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below. Uh thank you so much for coming on the show, Ryan, and uh, sharing your insights on T2C and retail and how things work. And happy investing. Thanks, Prashant. I appreciate you having me. Pleasure hosting. Bye-bye.